I start from page 188. Interest as a threat to peace. This is the import of the warning so powerfully delivered to mankind 1,400 years ago by the Holy Quran with regard to the Holocaust, to which the interest-based economies would ultimately lead mankind. those who devour interest stand like one whom Satan has smitten with insanity. That is so because they keep saying the business of buying and selling is also like lending money on interest. Whereas Allah has made buying and selling lawful and has made the taking of interest unlawful. Remember therefore that he who desists because of the admonition that has come to him from the Lord may retain what he has received in the past and his affair is committed to Allah. But those who revert to the practice, they are the inmates of the fire. Therein shall they abide. Allah will wipe out interest and foster charity. And Allah loves not confirm disbelievers and arch sinners. Surely, those who believe and act righteously and observe prayer and pay the zakat shall have their reward with their Lord. No fear shall come on them, nor shall they grieve. O ye who believe, fear Allah and relinquish what remains of interest if you are believers. But if you do not do it, then beware of war from Allah and his messenger. And if you repent, then you shall have your original sums. Thus you shall not wrong, nor shall you be wronged. And if any debtor be in straitened circumstances, then grant him respite till a time of ease, and that you remit charity shall be better for you, if only you knew. The warning about a war from God in the verses just cited means that the laws of nature governed by God would begin to punish the capitalist society when the factors which have been discussed earlier ultimately lead man to economic imbalance and warfare. Disorders, disturbances, and wars always follow exploitation and usurpation of the rights of the poor. We warn you about a war with God and his messenger means that the state, which thrives on interest, would inevitably end up in a situation where the nations will rise in arms against each other. Time does not permit me to elaborate this aspect of interest. In the Holy Quran, verses prohibiting interest always follow verses of warfare. 
This indicates the interrelation of interest and war. Those who are familiar with the history of the First and Second World Wars would remember that capitalism played a disastrous role in not only causing but also prolonging those wars. Prohibition of hoarding of wealth Islam rejects every form of exploitation and unfair means like the hoarding of wealth, capital, commodities and supplies, which set in motion spiraling prices and end in general inflation. The Holy Quran states, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, inna kathiran minal ahbari wal ruhbani layakuluna amwala nasi bil batil wa yasudduna an sabilillah. وَالَّذِينَ يَكْنِزُونَ الذَّهَبَ وَالْفِضَّةَ وَلَا يُنْفِقُونَهَا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَبَشِّرْهُمْ بِعَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ يَوْمَ يُحْمَى عَلَيْهَا فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَ فَتُكْوَى بِهَا جِبَاهُهُمْ وَجُنُوبُهُمْ وَظُهُورُهُمْ هَذَا مَا كَنَزْتُمْ لِأَنفُسِكُمْ فَذُوقُوا مَا كُنْتُمْ تَكْنِزُونَ All ye who believe surely many of the priests and monks devour the wealth of men by false means and turn men away from the way of Allah. And those who hoard up gold and silver, and spend it not in the way of Allah, give to them the tidings of a painful punishment. On the day when it shall be made hot in the fire of hell, and their foreheads, and their sides, and their backs shall be branded therewith, and it shall be said to them, This is what you treasured up for yourselves. So now taste what you used to treasure up. Yet Islam grants freedom to individuals to earn money by any lawful means within the Islamic code of economic behavior. Thus, there is the freedom and right for individuals to possess property and enter into private enterprise. In shaping the economies of their countries, the focus of attention of most governments is on how a member of society earns his livelihood. Taxation is imposed on sales turnover profit from trade and commerce and earnings from employment. Having done that, there is little further interference in the financial affairs of the individual. Broadly speaking, national interest is limited to the income side, but what or how an individual spends his earned or hoarded income is no concern of most states. If he so pleases, an individual may flush his income or wealth down the drain. He may acquire a lavish and extravagant lifestyle, or, despite his wealth, he may live in hardship if he chooses. It is no business of a state to interfere with how he intends to spend or employ his money. Nevertheless, this is an era where religions do step in and, by way of admonishment or counsel, not only tell an individual how he should earn his daily bread, but also guide him as to how he should or should not spend what he has earned. Most injunctions relating to expenditure are primarily moral and spiritual guidelines. For instance, when Islam prohibits expenditure on drinking and gambling and overindulgence in various pursuits of pleasure, though such injunctions may not directly aim at shaping the expenditure budget, they are a byproduct of the moral and spiritual teachings of a religion. In capitalist economies, such injunctions are considered as an invasion of privacy and an interference with the right of an individual to spend as he or she pleases. But this attitude is not new to man. According to the Holy Quran, earlier people and civilizations displayed exactly the same attitude towards religion. 
which sometimes resulted in a debate as to the justification of religions to interfere with people's personal affairs. When Shu'aib an ancient prophet, attempted to educate the people of Midian on how best they should spend their wealth and what they should refrain from, he was rebuked by his people. They replied, O Shu'aib, does thy prayer bid that we should leave what our forefathers worshipped, or that we cease to do whatever we may please with our wealth? Thou art indeed very intelligent and right-minded. Simple Lifestyle Islam advocates a simple lifestyle. It prohibits extravagance and encourages expenditure. وَلَا تَجْعَلْ يَدَكَ مَغْلُولَةً إِلَىٰ أُنْقِكَ وَلَا تَبْسُطْهَا كُلَّ الْبَسْطِ فَتَكْعُودَ مَلُومًا مَحْسُورًا Keep not thy hand chained to thy neck, nor stretch it out an entire stretching, lest thou sit down blamed or exhausted. وَآتِكَ الْقُرْبَ حَقَّهُ وَالْمِسْكِينَ وَابْنَ السَّبِيلِ وَلَا تُبَذِّرْ تَبْذِيرًا إِنَّ الْمُبَذِّرِينَ كَانُوا إِخْوَانَ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَكَانَ الشَّيْطَانُ لِرَبِّهِ كَفُورًا Give thou to the kinsman his due, and to the poor and the wayfarer, and squander not thy wealth extravagantly. Verily, the extravagant are brothers of Satan, and Satan is ungrateful to his Lord. Matrimonial Expense The style of marriage ceremonies between the rich and poor families can be a sensitive area which may cause terrible anguish and heartache to the poor parents with daughters of marriageable age. Lavish wedding receptions with a grand display of pomp, opulence, and pageantry are roundly condemned in Islam. In fact, we observe from the early history of Islam that wedding ceremonies were so simple as to appear colorless events in the sight of many. Although influenced by the customs and traditions of the surrounding societies, many innovations and malpractices have crept into Muslim marriage styles of the rich and basic formal ceremony remains exactly the same, plain, simple, and inexpensive for the rich and poor alike. The announcement of marriage, i.e. nikah, is pronounced mostly in mosques in the presence of all and sundry and where the rich and poor are gathered alike. The mosque is a house of worship and is no place for pompous display. As far as the reception feasts and other related expressions of joy are concerned, the rich are very firmly warned that any feast to which the poor have not been invited is cursed in the sight of God. Thus, amongst the most well-dressed richest members of society, you will find the most poorly dressed poor people mixing freely with the rich, a grand eye-opener for the rich and a special opportunity for the poor to taste some of the delicacies, fruits and dishes of the wealthy people. Accepting Invitations from the Poor the rich and the more highly placed people in the social order are strongly advised to accept the invitation of the poorest should such a person invite them to his humble home. Of course, it is not a must for the rich who may have their own prior commitments and difficulties. 
but it was a constant practice of the holy founder of Islam to accept the invitation from even the very poorest. All those who love him as their holy master are very proudly influenced by this admonition. Although in contemporary society, to always accept all such invitations would place the rich with no other preoccupation but to eat with the poor. The spirit of this injunction can still be kept alive by occasionally accepting such invitations. We have already stated that wine and gambling is prohibited. Lavish expenditure on reverie is therefore obviated. This general admonition condemning lavish expenditure and a high-flying lifestyle applies not only to marriages, but all spheres of human activity. The beauty of this teaching is that it is not enforced by compulsion, but is prompted by words of advice and love. Moderation in Eating Habits Ya Bani Adam, khudhu zinatakum inda kulli masjidin, wa kulu, wa shrabu, wa la tusrifu, innahu la yuhibbu al-musrifin. O children of Adam, look to your adornment at every time and place of worship, and eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely, he does not love those who exceed the bounds. Time does not permit me to dwell on the need to wage a war against hunger, to which end the, preven the prevention of food wastage is an important stepping stone. Nonetheless, I shall briefly refer to this subject later. Borrowing money. As far as borrowing money for the basic necessities of life is concerned, Islam strongly and repeatedly propounds that loans for exigencies and emergencies be without interest. Those with means should help those who need financial assistance. It is also clearly laid down that if the debtor is unable to return the loan in due time because of his straitened circumstances, he must be granted a greater period of grace. Close relatives may assist a debtor. Debts can be recovered from a deceased person's estate. Zakat can also be used to alleviate the financial obligations of one burdened with debt. If the rich can write the loan off, it would be better still in the sight of God. Nevertheless, a debtor who can afford to return the loan must fulfill his promise in repaying the loan within its appointed term and should add an ex-gratia amount thereon. This is not, however, obligatory nor predetermined since it would then fall under the broad definition of interest. The Holy Quran teaches, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, إِذَا تَدَايَنْتُمْ بِدَيْنٍ إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّنْ فَاكْتُبُوهُ وَلْيَكْتُبْ بَيْنَكُمْ كَاتِبٌ بِالْعَدْلِ وَلَا يَأْبَ كَاتِبٌ أَنْ يَكْتُبَ كَمَا عَلَّمَهُ اللَّهُ فَلْيَكْتُبْ وَلْيُمْلِ لِلَّذِي عَلَيْهِ الْحَقُّ وَلْيَتَّقِ اللَّهَ رَبَّهُ وَلَا يَبْخَسْ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا فَإِنْ كَانَ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِ الْحَقُّ سَفِيهًا أَوْ ضَعِيفًا أَوْ لَا يَسْتَطِيعُ أَنْ يُمِلَّ هُوَ فَلْيُمْلِ وَلِيُّهُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَاسْتَشْهِدُوا شَهِيدَيْنِ مِنْ رِجَالِكُمْ فَإِنْ لَمْ يَكُونَا رَجُلَيْنِ فَرَجُلٌ وَامْرَأَتَانِ مِمَّنْ تَرْضَوْنَ مِنَ الشُّهَدَاءِ أَنْ تَضِلَّ إِحْدَاهُمَا فَتُذَكِّرُ إِحْدَاهُمَا الْأُخْرَى وَلَا يَأْبَ الشُّهَدَاءُ إِذَا مَا دُعُوا وَلَا تَسْأَمُوا أَنْ تَكْتُبُوهُ صَغِيرًا أَوْ كَبِيرًا إِلَى أَجَلِهِ ذَلِكُمْ أَقْسَطُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ وَأَقْوَمُ لِلشَّهَادَةِ وَأَدْنَى أَلَّا تَرْتَابُوا إِلَّا أَنْ تَكُونَ تِجَارَةً حَاضِرَةً تُدِيرُونَهَا بَيْنَكُمْ فَلَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ جُنَاحٌ أَلَّا تَكْتُبُوهَا وَأَشْهِدُوا إِذَا تَبَايَعْتُمْ 
ولا يضار كاتب ولا شهيد وإن تفعلوا فإنه فسوق بكم واتقوا الله ويعلمكم الله والله بكل شيء عليم O ye who believe when you take a loan one from another for a term reduce the transaction to writing and let a scribe record it in your presence faithfully and no scribe should refuse to set it down in writing because Allah has taught him so he should write and let him who undertakes the liability dictate and he should fear Allah his lord and not diminish anything therefrom but if the person incurring the liability should be of defective intelligence or a minor or unable to dictate then let his guardian dictate faithfully and procure two witnesses from among your men and if two men be not available then one man and two women of such as you like as witnesses so that if either of the two women should be in danger of forgetting the other may refresh her memory and the witnesses should not refuse to testify when they are called upon to do so whether the transaction be large or small do not be disinclined to write it down together with the appointment appointed time of payment this is more equitable in the sight of allah mixed testimony surer and is more likely to exclude doubts in case of ready transactions when goods and money pass from hand to hand it shall be no sin for you not to reduce them to writing and have witnesses when you buy or sell and let no harm befall a scribe or a witness and if you do such a thing it shall certainly be disobedience on your part and be ever mindful of your duty to Allah and Allah grants you knowledge and Allah knows all things well and should you be on a journey and not find a scribe the alternative is a pledge with possession and when one of you entrusts something to another then let him who is entrusted render back his trust when he is called upon to do so and let him be mindful of his duty to Allah his lord and conceal not testimony and whoever conceals it is one is one whose heart is certainly sinful remember Allah knows well all that you do it is very important to remember that these verses have been completely misapplied and used entirely out of context by those medieval minded scholars who insist that according to Islam a single woman's testimony is not sufficient they say that for each legal requirement two women's testimony is essential in comparison to one man's wherever one man's testimony is sufficient having totally misconstrued the meaning of these verses they have falsely envisaged the role of male and female witness witnesses in islamic jurisprudence they think that when the holy quran requires one man as a witness the testimony of two women will be substituted in lieu thereof where two men's testimony is required four women's testimony will be required and where four male persons are required as witnesses eight women will be required to testify the same this concept is so unrealistic and alien to quranic teachings that one is exasperated to see such medievalist stance on this important judicial issue the following points should be noted regarding these verses 1 the verses do not at all require both women to testify 2 the role of the second woman is clearly specified and confined to be that of an assistant 3 
If the second woman, who is not testifying, finds any part of the statement of the witness as indicative of the witness not having fully understood the spirit of the bargain, she may remind her and assist the witness in revising her understanding or refreshing her memory. 4. It is entirely up to that woman who is testifying to agree or disagree with her assistant. Her testimony remains a single independent testimony and in case she does not agree with her partner, hers would be the last word. After this brief digression, let us return to the subject proper. Reducing loan agreements to writing with the debtor dictating the terms in the presence of witnesses for the sale of goods, being absolutely honest and mindful of God in fulfilling one's undertakings, and trustees discharging the trust honestly form the essential features of contractual obligations in Islam. It should be noted that, in an economy where lending tends to be interest-free, the lender will not un unnecessarily flush the economy with loans and credits. Therefore, the buying power of society will remain within realistic limits and related to the present. The tendency to borrow from the future will automatically be averted. An industry founded on this platform is bound to remain solid and able to survive the vicissitudes of economic hazards. Public wealth should not circulate in the higher plane of the wealthy, but should flow in the direction of the lower plane of the poor. Islam cultivates a lifestyle which is simple and, though strictly speaking not austere, is in no way glamorous and profligate to the extent that it begins to offend the poorer sections, causes heartache and widens the distance between the two sections of society. Economic Class Differences it should be well understood here that classes are created not merely by the accumulation of wealth in fewer hands, but by the division of capital among owners and the laborers, or by landlords and those who cultivate the land. There is much more to the creation of a class society. It is impossible to mention all the factors and how they jointly and severally contribute towards the creation of classes. A study of traditional Indian society should provide an excellent example of the existence of a class structure evolved over thousands of years. The entire course of this evolution was influenced not by the distribution of wealth but by racial, social, religious and political factors. A long history of invasions, internal strife, struggle for survival and domination is preserved in the caste system of India, which has carved so many classes. Marx took serious note of this situation. In a series of letters to New York's Herald Tribune, he considered the state of society in India as being at variance with the philosophy of scientific socialism. He concluded that the existence of this caste system rendered India the least likely country to turn to communism. From the Islamic point of view, the creation of classes in a society begins to hurt only when there is no code of ethics governing the way money should be spent. Imagine a society where people live a simple life, with no lavish expenditure on their clothing, food or accommodation, and where the contrasts in the style of life are not so distinctly marked. No matter how much wealth may have accumulated in a few hands, it is the expenditure which hurts rather than the accumulation of wealth in a few hands. It only begins to hurt when it is unevenly or imprudently spent or wasted. 
It is the luxurious lifestyle of the rich and all its concomitant flair, display, pomp, and pageantry, which, when observed from the lowly vantage point of the miserable and suffering poor struggling for survival, the uneven distribution of wealth begins to create unbridgeable chasms between the two. Therefore, Islam does not unduly interfere with the freedom of an individual to earn and to keep. On the contrary, it promotes and encourages the private sector more than the public sector. It lays down a well-defined code concerning the style of life which, when followed to the letter and spirit, would make life as a whole refreshingly simple for all. As this aspect of Islamic economic philosophy has been discussed earlier, we need not dwell upon it further. Islamic Law of Inheritance The Islamic Law of Inheritance also plays an important role in the distribution of wealth from the deceased to, this, to his dependents. Prescribed shares must be distributed amongst parents, spouses, children, relatives, and kith and kin. One cannot deprive them of their right of inheritance granted to them by God unless there be a good reason the validity of which will be determined by the courts in an Islamic state and not the individual. At best, a person can bequeath a maximum of one-third of his disposable possessions to other people or societies of his choice. These measures effectively prevent the accumulation of wealth in fewer hands. Under the Islamic law of inheritance, the rule of primogeniture or those which involve the impartiality of estates or the unrestricted power of bequest at the whimsical pleasure of the testator are prevented. Both movable and immovable property continues to be divided and subdivided in each generation, and within three or four generations, even large estates are parceled out into small holdings, so that no permanent division is created among the people by a monopoly of the ownership of the land. Prohibition of Bribery وَلَا تَأْكُلُوا أَمْوَالَكُمْ بَيْنَكُمْ بِالْبَاطِلِ وَتُدْلُوا بِهَا إِلَى الْحُكَّامِ لِتَأْكُلُوا فَرِيقًا مِنْ أَمْوَالِ النَّاسِ بِالْإِثْمِ وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ Do not devour your wealth among yourselves through falsehood, and offer it not as a bribe to the authorities, that you may knowingly devour a part of the wealth of other people with injustice. Again, I have to omit this aspect which is particularly noticeable in the form of corruption and bribery in the third world countries, but shall refer to it under individual peace. Commercial Ethics Islam neither disagrees with capitalism nor totally rejects scientific socialism, but remains their good points and attitudes. Following are some examples where 1,400 years ago, Islam advised a code of sound commercial ethics which modern man has ultimately discovered the hard way. 1. Islamic commercial relations are based upon absolute trust and honesty. 2. Islam forbids the use of false weights and the giving of short measure. 3. Traders are forbidden from selling defective articles or goods which are rotten or rendered useless. A trader must not try to conceal any defect of an article which he offers for sale. If such an article is sold without the buyer's prior knowledge, he has a right to return it when he discovers the fault or defect and obtain a refund. 4. A trader is prohibited from charging different rates to different customers, though he has discretion to offer concessional discounts 
to any customer or customers. He is free to fix any rate he considers reasonable. 5. Islam forbids false competition or cartels, which create false competition. It also forbids the inflating of prices at an auction by false bids or procuring bogus offers to deceive a prospective buyer. 6. Likewise, Islam recommends that the purchase and sale of goods take place in the open preferably in the presence of witnesses and that the buyer be put on alert on what he purchases. To cut a long story short, Islam adopts a strategy of decreasing the gap between the rich and poor by 1. Imposing certain inhibitions as have already been mentioned before, example, drinking, gambling, etc. 2. Prohibiting the hoarding of wealth and its accumulation by interest. 3. Encouraging private enterprise. 4. Promoting the rapid circulation of wealth. 5. The use of repeated admonition, persuasion, and instruction appealing to the nobility in man to voluntarily adopt a humble, meek, and simple lifestyle which is not too far removed from the reach of a poor man. The object of this exercise is to make man more sensitive to the feeling of others and to choke and kill in him the bestial and sadistic impulses. A holy war in the real sense of the words is waged against vanity, hypocrisy, superficiality, snobbishness, pride, and arrogance. All that is refined and noble in man is brought out and he is made so sensitive to the sufferings of others that he sometimes feels it to be a crime to live in luxury and comfort while others suffer and eke out an existence of misery and wretchedness. Of course, such highly cultured people who form the vanguard of sublime human values are always in a small minority, but the overall consciousness in society for the well-being of others is raised to such an irrespectable, is raised to such a respectable level that it becomes impossible for them to remain concerned only with their own necessities and comforts, oblivious of the miserable state of the less fortunate section of society. Their concern in life no longer remains introvert. They learn to live with a wider consciousness of life around them. They feel uneasy unless they materially participate in ameliorating the sufferings and raising the standards of life of others. The characteristics of such society of believers is described in one of the earliest verses in the Holy Quran and cited previously in this address, and spend out of what we have provided for them. Basic Needs In the previous section on socio-economic peace, we have seen how Islam has revolutionized the concept of arms for the poor and needy. As far as the rights of individuals in the national cake are concerned, the Holy Quran gives us the criteria whereby we can determine how much wealth, which should have flowed to the common man, has been transferred into the hands of a few capitalists. Those in whose wealth there is a recognized right for one who asks for help and for one who does not. These verses address the rich and remind them that part of their wealth comprises that which by right belongs to the beggar and the destitute. How can we judge that an imbalance has arisen in society by the transfer of rights due to the poor into the hands of a few rich people? 
the yardstick for this criterion is certain guaranteed rights. According to Islam, there are four basic needs of man which must be fulfilled. The Holy Quran states, Inna laka alla tajua fiha wala ta'ro wa annaka la tazma'u fiha wala tadha It is provided for thee that thou will not hunger therein nor will thou be naked and that thou will not test therein nor will thou be exposed to the sun. Thus, Islam establishes minimum rights in the form of a four-point charter by defining the basic needs which a state should procure. 1. Food 2. Clothing 3. Water 4. Shelter Even in England and the United States of America, there are hundreds of thousands of people without shelter and those who have to dip into dustbins to find some scrap of food to satiate their hunger. Such ugly scenes expose the inherent weakness of the capitalist society and bring to the surface the sumptuous of a deep underlying malice. Materialism in its ultimate form breeds selfishness and callousness and dulls human sensibilities to the sufferings of others. Of course, there are even uglier scenes of misery caused by extreme poverty in most third world countries. But the society as a whole is poor and the countries themselves are run on the same capitalist principles. Hence, it is not a question of whether the majority population of such countries is Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim or pagan. The system essentially remains capitalist in nature. Crime flourishes and vice prospers in the ghettos, which are a blemish on the face of humanity itself in the so-called developed nations of the world. There are regions in Africa and in other countries where even potable water is not av available to large sections of society. If you even get one square meal a day, you consider yourself lucky. Water becomes an everyday problem. There are countries in the world which have all the potential and resources to change their lot within a matter of a few years without feeling the pinch themselves. Yet, such countries do not care to commit their resources to ameliorate the sufferings of the hundreds of millions of people in poorer countries. From the Islamic point of view, this question is very important. According to Islam, it is not just the sufferings of one man for which the society of that country is responsible, but it is the sufferings of any human being in any society, that is to say, humanity which has neither geographical boundaries nor color creed, or political demarcations. Humanity at large is responsible and human beings as such are answerable to God. Whatever famine, malnutrition, or sufferings from any other natural disasters strikes any community, it must be treated as a human problem. All societies and states of the world must participate to help mitigate the sufferings. It is a shame that, despite all the advancement in science and technology, the elimination of thirst and hunger has not received the attention it needs. There must be a system whereby the sum total of human wealth can be quickly and efficiently channeled to those areas where hunger strikes or famine plays havoc with humanity or wherever people have been rendered destitute and homeless. Governments have both national and international responsibilities. These responsibilities on the national level are to fulfill the basic needs of each member of society by ensuring that all are fed adequately, clothed, and provided with water and shelter. The international duty 
to which further reference will be made later, is to fully participate in pooling resources to meet the challenges of wide-scale natural disasters or man-made calamities and to keep such countries as are by themselves incapable of appropriately handling the crisis. As such, it is the duty of the state to set the matters aright by transferring back to the beggars and poor people what truly belongs to them. So the four fundamental requirements of food, clothing, water, and shelter will have preference over all other considerations. In other words, in a truly Islamic state, there can neither be a beggar nor a destitute without food, clothing, water, and shelter. These overall requirements being guaranteed, the minimum responsibility of the state is discharged. But the society as a whole is supposed to do much more than this. Man cannot live by bread alone is a profound maxim. Add to this the requirement of healthy water, appropriate clothing, and a roof over his head. Yet, all these requirements put together cannot make life complete. Man will always be in search of something more than the bare necessities of life. So there has to be something else to be done by the society to remove the drabness, add some color to the life of the poor, and to make them share some of the pleasures of the wealthy. Again, it is not enough that the more fortunate members of society should share their wealth with the less fortunate members of society. But it is also necessary that they share the miseries that go with poverty, which afflict a very large number of human beings. There has to be some system of the intermixing of the rich and the poor, whereby, of their own volition, the upper layers of society mix with the people at lower levels to personally witness what it really means to live in poverty. Islam proposes many measures which make it impossible for the various classes to be compartmentalized and insulated in their own spheres. We have briefly mentioned some of these measures earlier. Worship as a means of economic unity. 1. Commencing with the affirmation of there being no God other than the one God establishes the unity of God and his creation thereby uniting mankind under the Almighty Creator. 2. The five daily prayers, which are to be said in congregation, is perhaps one of the most effective of all the measures in this regard. The rich and the poor, and the small and the big, are required, without exception, to say their prayers in mosques, if accessible. If not all, at least a large section of Muslim society is responsible for abiding by this injunction. The percentage of those who regularly pray five times a day may be lower in some countries and higher in others, but it is a common experience shared to a greater or lesser degree by a majority of Muslims. The system of prayer in itself is a grand message to the equality of man. The one who reaches the mosque first occupies the place of his choice, and none, howsoever highly placed in society he may be, can ever think of displacing him. At the time of prayer, all stand together, shoulder to shoulder, with no gap in between. The most impeccably dressed may be standing adjacent to him, someone clad in tattered rags. The weak and pale and the healthy and robust all meet together daily on an equal platform where the message invariably repeated is, God is the greatest. To see eye to eye the misery in which some members of a locality are living and to meet them daily leaves a very powerful effect on the heart of a man living in comparative comfort. The message is loud and clear that 
you must do something to ameliorate their sufferings and let their standards all be degraded yourself in the estimation of God as well as your own estimations. The area of this contact is broadened further on each Friday where Muslims gather at a central mosque so that people from richer neighborhoods meet those from poorer areas. It is extended still further on each of the biannual festivals which are preceded by Fitrana, a fund raised by voluntary contributions for the relief of the poor. 3. The Muslim month of fasting also sets on an equal plane the rich and poor. The rich endure thirst and hunger to remind themselves of the lot of the poor for whom thirst and hunger is but a way of life. 4. Zakat transfers the due right of the poor from the capital of the wealthy. 5. Then, finally, the fifth pillar of Islam is pilgrimage, often described as the greatest spectacle of human unity. The female pilgrims are permitted to wear simple sewn clothes. The male pilgrims are clad in two unsewn sheets, a uniform for both the rich and the poor. But that is not all. Apart from the above acts of worship, there are many other measures introduced and implemented in a Muslim society which continuously bridge the gap between various sections of society and provide the much-needed ventilation and convection for a healthy environment in which the rich are allowed to remain reasonably rich but are also required to care for the poor. A similar principle was expounded by Jesus when he said, The meek shall inherit the earth. It is a great pity that, despite this moral injunction, capitalism has singularly failed to care for the poor and the meek members of society. International Obligations Discussing the alternative course of action to be adopted during periods of any natural disaster or great calamity afflicting any society, see basic needs mentioned earlier. The Holy Quran describes the right choice in the following sequence. أو إطعام في يوم في مسغبة يتيما ذا مقربة أو مسكينا ذا مطربة It is the freeing of a slave or feeding on a day of hunger an orphan near of kin or a poor man lying in the dust. In other words, the right choices are 1. The genuine and true service of mankind which is acceptable to God has been described here. The foremost of those that need any help is that man should help those who are under any bondage or ties. Any service contrary to this concept is regarded by God as worthless. In the light of this, the modern system of providing financial aid to less developed countries with preconditions and strings attached to the aid is totally rejected. 2. The next choice is the feeding of an orphan even if he or she has a guardian to support him or her. 3. The final choice is the feeding of a destitute who is so helpless as though he had bitten, he had bitten the dust. Although addressed in the singular, these verses are evidently describing a wide-scale crisis. The connotation of the word yom literally means day, and the general style of expression is so obvious. Upon reflection, the implications of this verse paint a very clear picture of how big, wealthy and powerful nations treat the poorer ones who stand in dire need at times of extreme helplessness. They are provided with aid, but with strings attached. 
Thus, the very purpose and spirit of helping others is destroyed. They are liberated apparently from one misery only to be led into the snare of another. The entire contemporary system of international aid with strings attached is crisply described here in such few words. The believers are told not to take undue advantage of helpless people by relieving the sufferings of poor individuals or nations and at the same time depriving them of their liberty. The word orphan is used in a wider sense as it applies to dependent individuals as well as nations. Such nations who, like orphans with wealthy relations, have been abandoned by their kith and kin, should not be left unaided because they might be helped by others who are primarily responsible for them. The case of the oil-rich states is a fit example. If only a few states of the Gulf had enjoined hands to relieve immense sufferings of humanity at large, they could have resolved the problem of hunger and drought in Africa without feeling a pinch. The mountains of money they have in bank deposits and foreign assets in Western countries generate interest and income which alone is sufficient to allay the misery and suffering to Africa. In any case, Islam forbids them from spending such interest for their own use. The case of a multitudinous sea of hunger, misery, and want from the numerous calamities in Bangladesh is another deserving case to be studied in this context. They have been abandoned by the rest of the world to their own lot. The aid, if any, which trickles down to them is virtually ineffective for relieving their misery. Such nations must be considered orphan nations according to the wider definition of the term. When such orphan nations are abandoned by their own kith and kin, this constitutes a serious crime in the sight of God. People have a very naive and even crooked attitude towards God and nature for the sufferings of the poorer nations, whilst, most certainly, it is man himself who is to be blamed for his utter callousness and disregard. If we fill the hearts of human beings with that special quality and are able to suffer for the sake of others, the world can still be turned into a paradise. In the world outside Islam, the same selfish attitude prevails. If Ethiopia, for instance, happens to have close ties with the Soviet Union, aid should not be withheld on the pretext that it is for the Soviet Union to discharge its responsibility as a patron. If millions of Muslims in Sudan are dying of hunger, their plight should not be ignored on the plea that wealthy nations like Saudi Arabia and other oil-rich Muslim states, being virtually their kith and kin, have the ultimate responsibility to feed them. This is the true import of the Arabic expression, yatiman dha maqraba, that is an orphan near of kin. Again, it is pointed out in this verse that individuals or nations who suffer through individual or national economic crisis must be helped to make them stand on their own feet. This scenario applies to many third world countries whose economy is rapidly crumbling under because timely wide-scale help is not provided. The third choice is Aw miskinan the matraba, which applies to such economies as are reduced to dust and the entire economic system of the nation has collapsed. According to the Holy Quran, feeding the people in such countries is not enough. It is the responsibility of man to adapt measures to restore and rehabilitate their economies. Unfortunately, trade relations in this contemporary age represents the exact opposite. 
The flow of wealth is always in the direction of the richer and more advanced countries, while the economies of poorer countries sink deeper in the red. I am not an economist, but understand this much, at least, that it is impossible for the third world countries to retain bilateral trade relations with the advanced countries and yet prevent the flow of wealth from their countries to those of the rich by ensuring that exports revenues equal the import bill. Another important factor to bear in mind is that in all economically advanced nations, there is a constant urge for an improvement in living standards. The poorer nations are encouraged to borrow money to match the rising level standards of the developed world. Push-button technology leads to an easier and more comfortable life, even if such addictions to modern amenities ultimately may adversely influence the human character of hardiness. But if the people in advanced countries want to restore blood to their own cheeks and restore their own physical health, how can the wealthier nations be expected to relieve the poorer nations from a state of pernicious terminal anemia when their own thirst for more blood knows no bound and when their standard of living must continue to rise? And all that money can buy must constantly be transferred into their own economies. This mad race for rising living standards without discrimination is not only robbing the poorer nations of their chance of survival, but is also robbing the advanced nations themselves of their peace of mind and contentment of heart. The whole society is tantalized in the pursuit of artificially created needs, so that everyone lives in a constant state of wanting something to keep up with the Joneses. This again is a state of affairs which can potentially lead to war. This tendency is strongly discouraged in Islam. Islam presents to you a picture of a society in which people live within their means and there is some saving for a rainy day, not only at an individual and family level, but also on a national basis. For poorer countries, such a situation is potent with dangers because when the advanced countries suffer from the new challenges of competition from emerging economies, and their own economies begin to stagnate, they would become more callous in their relationship with the third world or poorer countries. This is inevitable because, somehow or the other, the governments of richer countries must maintain a reasonable standard of life for the people who have become addicted to them. Ultimately, these situations aggravate and culminate in factors which create wars. It is such wars that Islam seeks to prevent. I stop at page 215.